Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one? Or blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looters and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this passage to us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might understand what you have to say to us, that we might listen to it, that we might see Jesus more clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A wife sends her programmer husband grocery shopping. She says, I need butter, sugar, and cooking oil. Also, get a loaf of bread, and if they have eggs, get six. The husband returns with butter, sugar, and cooking oil, as well as six loaves of bread. The wife asks, why did you get six loaves of bread? To which the husband replies, they had eggs. It's a joke for the programmers out there. They don't get many sermon illustrations, so. What's going on in that story? The husband heard his wife, but he didn't really hear what his wife was saying. He misinterpreted the logical structure of her instructions. Well, as we're going to see in our passage this morning, although God's people have perfectly functioning ears, they're not actually hearing and listening to what he has to say. As we look at this passage, I want us to see three points this morning. First, God's servant is deaf and blind. Second, God chooses to love his people. And third, God makes his people his witnesses. First, God's servant is deaf and blind. Second, God chooses to love his people. And third, God makes his people his witnesses. Okay, so the first point, God's servant is deaf and blind. Now, if you remember the beginning of chapter 42 from when I preached that a while ago, it paints this wonderful picture of this servant that God is sending, a servant who has God's spirit, who's going to bring forth justice faithfully and gently and patiently, and he's going to be a light for all nations. And uh, it builds up some pretty high expectations for this servant. And, And I mentioned that sometimes it's a little confusing in Isaiah to figure out who the servant is. The servant can mean different things. But one of the candidates is that God's people might be corporately the servants. They were the people of God. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them his law, a special teaching on how to live before God in a just and fair way. And they were supposed to practice that law as an example so that the nations around them could see their justice and the wisdom of the way they lived, and and ask questions about the God who gave them the law. That's what Israel was always supposed to be. But if that's what we have in mind, if we're expecting God's people to be this great servant, then we're going to be abruptly caught short by verses 18 and 19. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind, so that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one, or blind is the servant of the Lord. What? The servant is deaf and blind? That's not good news, especially if the servant is supposed to be God's messenger. How can the servant hear what God is trying to tell him? It's going to be pretty hard to share God's message with the world if you're not even listening to God. What can it mean that the servant is deaf and blind? Well, let's clear up one potential misunderstanding right away. 
This is not like physical blindness or deafness where somebody can't see or hear through no fault of their own. Maybe you remember that Bible Bible story in John 9 where Jesus and his disciples meet this man born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And, And Jesus says, neither, neither of them sinned. That's not why this man is blind. Jesus is clear that we shouldn't think about disabilities as a sign of sin in the person who has them. Rather than just seeing that blind man as a theological debate topic, Jesus loves him and steps into his life and heals him. But that's not what's going on here in our passage this morning. Look at verse 20. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. And 43 verse 8 says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. This is not disability. This is willful blindness and deafness. They can see, but they're not looking. They can hear, but they're not listening. Well, Verse 21 tells us God's intention. This is what God wanted for Israel. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. The image is that God's teachings through Moses and the prophets would create a community where justice and truth would shine forth like a city on a hill, but instead the people's stubbornness has left them trapped in the dark. Verse 22 This is the people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. And who was it? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? Since they refuse to listen, God brings trials and suffering more and more severe each time in the hopes that something might get through to them. The tragedy is that even when their cities were burned, even when God's temple was leveled to the ground and the people were removed from their land, the servant is still not listening to God's. Verse 25, so he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burnt him up, but he did not take it to heart. In January 2013, there was a webcomic that was posted. I don't know if you've seen it. It features a dog having coffee at his kitchen table, while all around him, his house is burning down. I don't know if you've seen this comic. What does the dog say? This is fine. That was 2013. We've had a lot of opportunities to use that meme since then. A lot of situations like a house burning down. Well, Israel in this passage is that dog. Israel's being burned by the consequences of their own actions, but they refuse to take it to heart. They refuse to ponder how they might have been wrong. And I want to emphasize what's being said here because it makes a big difference in how we understand the whole story of the Bible. Um, For those who aren't familiar with the story or not remember it, Israel ends up in this downward spiral where God brings repeated military defeats, 
uh, to awaken them to the danger of their sin, and he sends multiple prophets, prophet after prophet, calling them to repent. And sometimes Israel does repent, at least for a little while, but it's never lasting. And it all culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the forcible deportation of a large part of the population to Babylon. And we call that event the exile. And we might think that Israel learned their lesson at this point, that having that happen to you would make you wake up. But if you actually look at the the picture that prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel paint, it becomes clear that even in exile, Israel is still stubbornly refusing to listen and learn what God has to teach them. At least initially, as Israel is headed off into captivity, the exile has not worked. It doesn't seem to have produced change. And this self-destructive stubbornness of God's people is, is really disturbing, isn't it? I mean, we've got some wonderful hope in this chapter. Don't worry, that's where we're headed. But I want us to take a moment and spend some time in this disturbing moment first. And, you know, as I was preparing the sermon this week, I, I couldn't help but think that a lot of Christians I know are, are reflecting on this right now. don't know if anybody's followed the Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today has produced, documenting the collapse of a famous church and its pastor. Uh, it's ex- uh, the journalists over at Christianity Today have been exposing the rot that had set in at that church that led to that implosion. And it stirred up this question that actually it gets stirred up a lot from time to time. Maybe you've asked this yourself, why is the church so messed up? Maybe if you're here today and you don't call yourself a Christian, that's something you've wondered. You know, why, if the Bible is God's true revelation, are Christians always doing bad things, it seems? Sometimes it, and it, you know, if you, are, if you are someone who's a Christian, it can be amazingly demoralizing, can't it? It seems like the church is always bursting with scandals and hypocrisies. And I imagine that's especially true for you, especially for those of us who are younger, because, you know, those of us who are young have a talent for noticing the hypocrisy of our elders. So I notice this is something younger Christians notice a lot about the church and struggle with. And I don't even mean to get into all those problems where Christians disagree with people from other denominations. I've noticed that happening a bit with this Marl's Hill podcast. Everybody's lining up to be like, ah, yes, this is all about how those other Christians over there um, are doing something wrong, and that's causing all the problems. Um, But if we just focus on the stuff that we all generally agree is wrong, there's plenty of room to be humble for. Let me just pick an example right from our own church tradition. In 1964, C. Herbert Oliver wrote an article in the Presbyterian Guardian calling out segregation in the church and giving a clear explanation of why it was unbiblical, as the Bible calls all, um, all peoples and nations and tongues together and says that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall. Oliver strongly called out for the end of segregation in the Presbyterian church specifically. He was one of the few African-American Presbyterian ministers in his denomination, the OPC, a sister denomination of ours, and he was a graduate of Westminster Seminary. That's where I went. That's where Stephen Coleman teaches now. 
Anyway, in, in a subsequent issue, Presbyterian minister Morton H. Smith wrote a response article arguing that the segregation of the races was good and biblical, and for good measure, measure he suggested that the civil rights movement was probably the result of communist influence. Now, how, how, is the, how, is he, how does that matter? Well, Morton H. Smith was one of the founding members of our own denomination, the PCA. And he did more than almost anybody else to bring it into existence. In the same edition of the Presbyterian Guardian, there's a letter to the editor by E.J. Young, one of the Old Testament professors at Westminster Seminary. So if you're following the link of Presbyterian Connections, just for those of you who, who, who uh, aren't as aware of it, that would be, have been C. Herbert Oliver's teachers, one of his teachers at Westminster. While Young's church was integrated, and that was the way he preferred it, he didn't think we should try to force segregated churches to integrate. He thought we should leave it up to individual churches to make up their own minds. Young was concerned that forced integration might hurt the church's witness to white people who wouldn't want to attend a church that wasn't segregated. And this is a quote from Young. Lastly, I am troubled by the great amount of space devoted to the question of civil rights and race relations in the latest issue of The Guardian. These are not the paramount issues before the church today. He said that in 1964, folks. In Young's opinion, the church should focus on preaching the gospel and leave the issue of segregation alone. And I think we need to notice Young's role in all of this, because I'm sure there are lots of people that disagreed with Morton H. Smith's position, but who didn't think it was outside the bounds of acceptability for the church, who didn't think that he needed to be confronted or rebuked for his view. Now, what I need you to understand is that these were men of outstanding reputation for Christian character in their day. We could list many other commendable things that they did. These are men who fought for the authority of Scripture and who fought against various other doctrinal errors. And perhaps someone might say at this point, you know, these are men of their times, they didn't know better, but no, we can't say that in this case. Not when the Holy Spirit raised up a black Presbyterian minister to explain exactly why their position was unbiblical. They'd read Oliver's article, and Young knew him personally. This was his own student who he was telling him that his inclusion was not a priority. No, what's going on here? These men could have known better, but they did not listen. Or they chose other priorities. They wanted other biblical priorities, but not at the expense of following the Bible's teaching on race. Well, the fact is, it took our church a long time to listen. We first confessed our corporate sin of racism in 2002. And we had our first church discipline case in the PCA for racism in 2015. But one can only wonder what kind of a difference it might have made if our church for all of those decades since 1964, had been actually fighting for what the Bible teaches on this issue. Well, why do I bring it up? Is it just to make you uncomfortable? I actually hope it does make you a little uncomfortable. I think we need to take an honest look at these sorts of failings at home. I mean, we can talk about you know, other denominations that may be compromising biblical teaching on sexuality or giving up biblical doctrine, and that's important too, but this passage, I think, calls us to take a look at the uh, lack of hearing within our own circles. It calls us to bring it home. And I hope it serves as a warning as well 
that we are just as capable of spiritual blindness and deafness as the ancient Israelites. This is not ancient history, it's recent history. God could send us preachers calling out our sin explicitly and clearly, and we might not listen. It's not a distant possibility, and it's not just a possibility for other people. It's a possibility that should alarm us. It should inspire a quickness to listen and desire to examine ourselves for any of that kind of stubbornness. Does this picture of the stubbornness of these people, it, it, it terrifies me when I think about it, that someone's heart could be in that condition, that my heart could be in that condition. It makes me want to call out for God to save me from myself. And also, if you're somebody who's discouraged when you see scandal in the church, as I know a lot of people are right now, I want you to know that it's not new. It's not a sudden or unexpected trial. The Bible addresses it. God addresses it, and it leaves us with hope even for stubborn people. Let's turn to that now in our passage, shall we? You know, chapter 43 begins, but now. And maybe this is the point where we expect God to lower the hammer. After all, even after he's exiled his people, they're still not listening to him. Surely this is the point where you cut bait, where you end your relationship once and for all. But what do we read? But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Instead of judgment, we find an oracle of salvation, of deliverance. God speaks grace to his people instead of judgment. And by the way, I think this is what is really transformative about Israel's experience of the exile. Not just that God sent them into exile as a consequence for their sin, as important as that is, but that God went into exile with them, that he stuck with them and still claimed them there. And why is this? Why did God do this? All we can really answer is because in his love, God decided to. God reminds them that he'd chosen them as a nation. He says, I've called you by name. I've created you and formed you. And I think John Calvin's right that God's not talking about this initial creation of the world here. He's talking about how he created Israel as a people at the Red Sea when he rescued them from Egypt. God claimed them as his own on that day. And now he says, you are precious. You are honored. I love you. And God describes his choice of Israel as a giving up or passing over of the other nations. He could have chosen bigger, more impressive nations. Verse 3, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in exchange for you. And then in verse 4, I give men in return for you. It actually translates as, I would, I would give humanity in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. You know, if God would give all humanity for Israel, why do you, why do you think he singles out Egypt, Cush, and Saba here. Why those three nations? Um, well, Cush was actually running Egypt at this point. You might run into King Taharqa of uh, Egypt sometimes in the Bible, and he was a Cushite pharaoh. So those two go together. But what about Saba? Well, Saba 
controlled the whole south of the Arabian Peninsula at this time. And why is that important? Why is controlling the whole south of the Arabian Peninsula important? Well, if you're bringing trade goods up from Africa to the Middle East, you've got two choices. One, you could go up through Cush in Egypt, and the other, you could cross the Gulf of Aden and go up through the Arabian Peninsula. It's the trade routes. Egypt and Cush and Saba control all of the trade that comes out of Africa into the Middle East, and they got a lot of wealth out of doing that. Assyrian sources at the time tell us about gold, precious stones, ivory, and incense that was available through these trade routes, not to mention horses and camels. So the upshot is that these nations control a vast amount of wealth. And so God mentions them as if to say to Israel that he would give up the most fabulously wealthy nations in exchange for them. Israel's value in his eyes is beyond valuation. And because of that, God promises two things. Number one, he is with his people, and second, he will bring his people back to his land. Look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. You know, when Israel fled from the Egyptian chariots at the Red Sea, God was with them and brought them through the waters. Now he's going to protect them even against fire. And this verse is very reminiscent of the story of the fiery furnace, where those three men were protected from the flames by a mysterious heavenly visitor who was present there with them in the middle of the flames. But these are, of course, also a bigger picture for all of the different trials that the exiles are going to have to walk through. God doesn't promise them that life is always going to be easy. They're headed into a hard exile. They will go through fire and water, but God will be with them, and he will bring them through. Ultimately, God is going to ransack the nations to bring his children back home. Verse 6, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Well, what are we to make of this response to a people who refuses to see and hear? In the midst of their sin, God gives this people unconditional love. Well, it's not a love that has no consequences for wickedness. Mind you, they're, they're living the consequences. But this is a love which sticks with the people through those consequences. This love is unconditional in the sense that it cannot be stopped or thwarted even by Israel's sin of hardness of hearts. And this love isn't even based on their ability to repent for their sins. Now, that repentance does come. It's absolutely essential. What God's about to do with Israel in the exile is going to produce some of the greatest repenters in the whole Bible. Folks like Daniel and Ezra, but God doesn't wait for them to repent before showing them kindness. Instead, it is his great kindness that leads them to repentance. It is God's gracious love and unwavering choice of Israel which ultimately melts their hearts. And uh, these are words for us as well today. I mean, we're not 
We may not be literally Jewish. We may not be descended from Abraham, but the New Testament tells us that in Jesus, we're adopted into God's family and given the privileges of heirs. And that means that these things that God says to his people in this passage, these are yours too in Christ. And you need to hear them today, especially if you're someone who's stuck in a place of stubbornness with a closed heart, indifferent to what God has to say, if you feel like, I just really don't care what God has to say. And if you're somebody who's put your faith in Jesus, I want you to hear the Holy Spirit speaking these words to you today. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. The power in those words, may they transform us. So that's the second point. Israel is a stubborn mess, but God loves them anyway. But the next part of the passage is even more amazing than that. God makes Israel his witnesses. In verses 8 and 9, God calls his people before him, and he also calls all the nations of the earth as well. Bring out the people who are blind yet have ears, who, are, who have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. This is a courtroom scene. You know, the people of the nations are asked whether they can reveal the truth. And really it's their gods that are being asked God's asking them, you know, all those resources and skill that you, the, you, you nations are pouring into divination and magic and witchcraft, seances and dream rituals, what do you have to show for it? Can you produce any witnesses for the truth of what your gods have to say? And of course, this is the theme of this whole part of Isaiah. No, they can't, because their gods are not real. They can't predict the future like the God of Israel can. But then we get to the surprising part. God calls his witnesses. And would you believe it? He calls his blind and deaf people to the stand. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. See, God's story with Israel isn't just going to be Israel is a mess, but God loves them anyway. God's not going to let them off the hook that easy. No, he has a high calling for them, a special job. He's going to make them his witnesses. He will not be content until he has turned them into the servant they are supposed to be, until they do bring that light to the nations that they were always supposed to. God does not leave Israel in their sin, but God also does not leave Israel in their sin. Well, if Israel's going to do that job, there's an important lesson that they're going to have to learn first. They're going to have to learn who God is. As verse 10 says, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Now, what does that mean? I am he, or you could translate it, I am that one. Uh, it's from Deuteronomy 32, 39. Isaiah is picking up a very traditional phrase in uh, the Bible. And I am he is often followed by a who statement. I am he who blots out your transgressions. Or I am he who heals you. 
What it most focuses on is that God is the one who does these things and not another. Don't look for another savior or healer or helper or Lord, God says, because I am that for you, not anybody else. And so here God reminds them that he is the only God. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. You know, there are actually plenty of gods in the ancient Near East who claimed to be the first God, to have existed when none of the others did. What's really surprising is that there's no gods after God either, none before or after. He's the only one. God is the beginning and the end, the only God, and that's what Israel's supposed to learn. And there's another aspect of this statement as well. It communicates uh, the constancy and permanence of God. Look at verse 13, also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? See, God is saying, I was he. I was the one who did all of those things back then with your parents in Egypt that you've heard about. Also, I am he. I'm the one who is still with you now. And also, going forward, I will be that same he. God doesn't change. He's not going to grow tired of redeeming Israel as he did at the Red Sea so many years ago. And nothing can stand in his way. So this is what Israel is supposed to learn, and this is what they're supposed to witness to the nations. I suppose we might call it monotheism, but that might focus us a little bit too much on the theory. They've come to know God's oneness, his uniqueness, through his single-minded, unwavering love for them. They know the one God as their God. And through the trials of exile, Israel was bonded deeply to this one God. The course of Israel's history from this point would have moments where men and women willingly were, um, were martyred rather than worship another god. And one day, curious pagans throughout the Roman Empire would be interested to find out about this people who only worshiped one god. Folks, this is an important part of the gospel message not to wit and to miss. The gospel's not just, you are a mess, but God loves you anyway. It is, you're a mess, but God loves you anyway and is committed to making you his witnesses. After all, it wouldn't really be good news to say our denomination has had moments where it was really racist in the past, but God is okay with it. That wouldn't be good news, would it? Certainly not. When God's church tolerates sin and injustice, we can expect God to intervene. The gospel, though, is that God knows how to lovingly bring us to repentance. When the church fails, God steps in. And that finally brings us to Jesus. Take a look at verse 10. You are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. And God doesn't just send his people out on their own to be witnesses. Um, Instead, he promises to send a servant. This is the servant we heard about at the beginning of chapter 42, the gentle servant who will not bend a bruised reed or quench a smoking wick. 
this is the servant we're going to hear so much about in the coming chapters of Isaiah who will suffer to bear the transgressions of his people. And the New Testament makes it clear that this servant is Jesus. And why is that important? It's because Jesus is the only perfect human witness to God. This calling God gives us, we can only fulfill it in a very imperfect and halting way. And the only reason we're able to do that is because Jesus has done it first. And Jesus is able to witness to God, not only because he never disobeys God's law, but also because he is God incarnate. Jesus' identity as God's servant is also confirmed by his healing miracles. He compassionately tends those who are sick and wounded, not through any fault of their own. But this ability to cure physical blindness and deafness is a picture of Jesus' ability to cure spiritual blindness and deafness as well. As he reminds John the Baptist when John had that moment of doubt, you see that the blind and deaf are being cured. Blessed is the one who's not offended at me. But it cost Jesus everything to do that for us. And even as Jesus was being crucified, he still looked at those who were crucifying them, him and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We can only be witnesses because we have received this witness in Jesus. Our imperfect attempts to reach out to the world in love are founded upon his perfect and perfect obedience and the perfect unconditional love that Jesus gives us, a love that sticks with us even when we are stubbornly refusing to listen. And it's a high calling we're given. Jesus isn't to save us and put us all in the church and doesn't even just have us work on our personal holiness. Well, that's important. He saves us to send us out into the world as his servants. And it's because we understand how much we owe to God's grace that we're able to do that. Um, my parents' old pastor, Jack Miller, used to say, when we tell people about Jesus, it's like one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And it's this that gives me hope for a messed up church. After all, when were God's people really ever more messed up? When were they ever listening less than when they crucified God's own son? The religious leaders were conspiring with pagans to do it. Jesus' own apostles who he'd chosen to lead his church had all run away. At the cross, we see all humanity, including God's people, complicit in injustice. And yet that's when God won his greatest triumph in love. God was there with Jesus and in Jesus, loving his unjust people and accomplishing a redemptive work that would transform them. So let's believe this. Let's know this. Let's understand this, who God is in Christ. There is a power there that can take even those who refuse to listen and turn them into God's witnesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit, especially for any among us 
who are stubbornly refusing to listen to something right now, we pray that you would convict us, open our hearts, melt our hearts with the wonders of the gospel, the amazing grace you've shown us in Jesus. Transform us, help us to repent of our sins, and we pray you would be with us and make us witnesses to the surrounding world this week as we bask in the light of what Jesus has accomplished for us and done for us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's stand and praise God together singing Amazing Grace. Hymn 460, Amazing Grace. <laughs>